We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning. We're going to continue our series through the book of Mark. And I titled the sermon this morning, Jesus Knows, Jesus Cares. And what I hope to accomplish this morning, and what I hope that you know leaving, that you may not have known coming, is the extent to which what Jesus knows, and how what Jesus knows shows us the way in which he cares. So let's look at Mark chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 30, and we're just going to read three short verses. Here's what it says. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is a privilege and an honor to be here this morning and to open the Word of God with these people. God, we thank you that you have given us your Son, Jesus, just as we sang about. You sent your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will never perish, but have eternal life. And God, we thank you that this morning Jesus felt the need in this time of transition to tell his disciples for the second time in this gospel that he was going to be killed, but also that he would be raised from the dead. And God, we ask this morning that you'd help us to understand. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, these, these are just three short verses in the Gospel of Mark, and they're transition verses. So you read here at the beginning of, of verse 30 that they went on from there, and they were passing through Galilee. So clearly, that Jesus and his disciples are on the move. Now if we back up to chapter 8, and if you look at verse 22, it says they came to Bethsaida. All right, so Bethsaida... If you look at a map of of ancient Israel, Bethsaida is on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And then, looking forward to verse 27, Jesus and his disciples, uh, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So again, we're seeing uh, another instance where Jesus and his disciples are traveling. And Caesarea Philippi is north of Bethsaida, so they're, they're traveling north, and it's here at at Caesarea Philippi that we see the transfiguration. Jesus brings Peter, James, and John up to the mountain with him, and he sees uh, Jesus being transfigured, and then they come down from the mountain, and Jesus is saying, don't, don't say anything about this until the Son of Man has been raised. And then we see our passage from last week, where the, Jesus heals a boy who was, had a demon inside of him. But then we notice in, in chapter 9, verse 30, they passed on from there through Galilee, and if we look down to verse 33, they came to Capernaum. So even just in these last two chapters, we've seen a lot of travel. They start out in Bethsaida, they go north to Caesarea Philippi, they see the transfiguration, Jesus heals this boy, and then they come back down to Capernaum. Now I find it interesting, as I'm reading through the gospel, the, the places that Jesus traveled to and from are maybe significant, but the time spent traveling from one place to another seems relatively unimportant. 
Because as, as I think about my own life, if I were to try and give a, a synopsis of the last three years of my life, let's say the last three years of my ministry here at Fairdale, I would have to say I probably wouldn't think to include times of, well, uh, you know, Sam and I traveled back to Pennsylvania, and we had life-altering conversations on the way. Because typically, when we travel from one place to another, that's not the main event. We're, the main event and the main thing that we focus on is what happens when we get there. So why does Mark include all these, these small details of Jesus traveling with his disciples? But I want us to notice another thing. In our passage this morning, there's a very unique conversation that's happening as the disciples are traveling from one place to another. Let's look at our passage again. So they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and Galilee's a region. He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This is a heavy conversation that's happening as they're traveling from one place to the next. Now let's look back at chapter 8. Remember how I said in verse 22, it says that they had come to Bethsaida? Now look at verse 20, 27. It tells us that Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Okay? So they're on the way. The, the very next phrase here says, And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Now we covered this passage quite a while ago. It was before Christmas. But then look down at verse 31. So they're still on the way. They haven't gotten there yet. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Now that, right there in, in Mark 8, is the first time that Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection. And he's telling it only to his immediate 12 disciples. And he's telling it on the way to another location. We see the same thing in chapter 9. But now look ahead to chapter 10. In chapter 10, we see a third instance where Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection. And let's pick up in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. So three times in Mark's Gospel, we have Jesus foretelling of his death and resurrection. Now, I'm sure all of you have, have already made the connection. What, is, what do they all have in common? Every time Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has this conversation as he and the disciples are traveling from one place to the next. Which seems maybe odd. Why would he not have this conversation with, with all the people that have come to see him? But I think when we, when we notice this, it can tell us just a couple of things about Jesus' ministry. First, Jesus is not seeking fame through the miracles and signs that he's performing. 
I'm sure many of us in the, in the culture that we live in look at um, rock stars or, or famous people that go around touring, and maybe you've even heard some stories how, you know, they're one way when they're on the stage, and they're, they're very lively, and, you know, we love to watch their performances, and they're great, but yet you hear about their interactions with people outside of that, and they're miserable, hard to get along with, they're needy, they want everything a certain way. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus did not come to earth simply to perform miracles and signs so that he would receive recognition and fame and fortune. We see it in, in Jesus' private conversations where his heart truly is. And he's wanting his disciples to know what is going to come. But secondly, we see that Jesus is also making the best use of the time. Jesus had approximately a three-year public ministry. And Jesus did not waste any moment of those three years. Jesus knew what his purpose was, and Jesus knew that he was going to fulfill every last moment of time that he had to carry out his purpose. Jesus was not lazy. Jesus did not think, well, we're just traveling. It's not a big deal. I'll just kick back and, you know, ride the camel and let the disciples walk. Jesus was intentional. And even in the times where they were traveling from one place to the next, which seems like such a mundane detail, Jesus is pouring into his disciples, preparing them for what is going to happen. But thirdly, Jesus is revealing to his disciples the true purpose of his ministry. The true purpose of Jesus' ministry is his death, and resurrection. Josh talked at length about that last week, where, where he talked, sorry, two weeks ago, when they're coming down the mountain and Jesus tells the disciples, don't say anything about this until after the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Because he, he wants it to be clear that my ministry or my purpose here on earth is not just about this awesome transfiguration that you saw. The purpose that I have come for is the death and resurrection of the Son of God. And Jesus, again, in these seemingly mundane details of Mark's gospel, is saying to us, the purpose that I have come is that I would be delivered over into the hands of men, that I would be killed, but that I would rise, rise again. But there's something else that all three of these, these passages where Jesus foretells his his death and resurrection. There's another thing that they all have in common. And maybe you noticed this as we read them. All three times, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Which is kind of interesting. He could just say, guys, I am going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over into the hands of men. They're going to kill me. And I'm going to rise again. But rather, he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered and killed and rise again. So why does Jesus use this Son of Man language? Well, I started looking up, uh, what does the Son of Man mean? What, what, where does that phrase come from? Where does that term come from? And it's used a lot in the Old Testament. It's used to refer to Ezekiel in the book of Ezekiel over 90 times. And, and really, it's, it's just a poetic way of saying he is the offspring of man. He is a, a human. And so, Son of man is a way that Jesus refers to himself in his humanity. We know that he is a son of man. He is a, a man, fully man, but still fully God. 
But there's another use in the Old Testament for son of man, which is very different. And it comes in, in Daniel chapter 7. And if, if you know where that is, turn there with me real quick. I do want you to see this. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel receives a vision from heaven. And in it, we see an individual who is referred to as the son of man. Look with me at Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him, talking about the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now this is, a, is an individual who's very different from just simply the offspring of a man. This son of man is talking about a glorious and, and mighty individual. And when it says that he's presented to the Ancient of Days, the Ancient of Days, if you read right before this, is talking about God. So it says the son of man is presented to the Ancient of Days or to God, and God, look what he gives him. Dominion, glory, in a kingdom that all people, nation, languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So this son of man, the son of man that Daniel sees in this vision, is a glorious son of man. In the New Testament, we see the son of man occurs 88 times. Only five times it is not coming from the mouth of Jesus. Son of man was Jesus' favorite designation of himself. He referred to himself as son of man very often. And what I, wanna, what I think Jesus wants his disciples to see and what I think Mark wants us to see is that Jesus, in referring to himself as the son of man, in a way is saying to his disciples, hey, if you've got ears to hear, if you've got eyes to see, realize the connection that I'm making here. Remember what Daniel said about the, the vision of the Son of Man, how he's going to receive dominion and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages are going to serve him. And Jesus is using that language for us to be thinking, Jesus is the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is the one that God is going to give these things to. And Mark would want us to notice the same thing. See, I don't know how many times I've read the Gospel of Mark or specifically this passage over the last few weeks, but it's real easy to read it and think not much of this little phrase, Son of Man. That's something we could very easily pass over and not really give a whole lot of thought to. But it's screaming to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised Messiah who is going to come. And God will, will be pleased to give him this kingdom, to give him dominion, which will never end, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him and bow down to him. That's who Jesus is. Let's not read our Bibles in such a way that we, that we miss these things, but let's read our Bibles carefully so that we don't miss the glorious proclamation in seemingly mundane words like son of man.
But let's look back at our passage now, and, and, and I want us to see the two things that, that I kind of called out in the title, that Jesus knows and that Jesus cares. So, so let's look back at our passage. So they went on from there. They're passing through Galilee. Jesus does not want people to know because he's teaching his disciples. This is a private teaching moment. And Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. So first, let's look at what Jesus knows. Well, it seems pretty apparent just from this passage that he knows he's going to die. Not only that he's going to die, that's not that impressive. We all know that we're all going to die. But Jesus knows exactly how he's going to die. Now, we don't necessarily have that information. Maybe, maybe sometimes when, when an individual gets cancer or, or some disease of, of some sort, then, then maybe we have an idea, this is probably how I'm going to die. But we don't know the fine details. We don't know how it's all going to play out. We, don't, we just don't know all that. Jesus does. Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed after three days, he's going to rise. Now, if we look at the other two passages where Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection, we see even more detail. Specifically in chapter 10, where he says they're going to mock him, they're going to spit on him, they're going to flog him. We get the idea that Jesus knows everything that's about to, to take place. I wonder how we would respond if we knew that about our own life. I think in a way, God has been gracious to us in, in concealing from us what the future holds. Because if we knew the very moment at which we will die, if we knew the very moment at which all of our loved ones would die or experience great pain and suffering, I got a feeling our life would be not much more than just misery. Knowing it's coming, not being able to stop it or do anything about it would not be a fun life, would not be a fun existence. But yet here we read that Jesus is foretelling to his disciples that he is going to be handed over into the hands of men. They're going to kill him. Imagine the weight that Jesus carried on his shoulders knowing that. Shouldn't be a surprise to us that Isaiah, talking about the, the Savior, said that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus carried a great weight on his shoulders. I was listening to uh, a lecture by a scholar. His name is Dr. Ligon Duncan. He's a phenomenal preacher as well. And, and he was talking uh, from a different passage about what does Jesus know? And it's very similar to this passage here. And, and one of the ways that he kind of phrased it was, let's, let's say that you all are going on the mission field. Bringing your wife, you're bringing your kids, the whole family is going on the mission field. And you're going to work with an unreached people group, and you're going to work there for about 15 or 16 years. And after 16 years, you've been with these people for, for a long time. One day, they snap. And they turn against you. And they kill your wife. 
They kill your kids. You barely escape. If you knew that 16 years ago, would you still go? If you knew it was going to happen, but there was nothing you could do to stop it, would you still go? If you knew the very minute that that was going to occur, there was nothing you could do to stop it, would you still go? See, I think God has, has been very gracious to us in concealing from us what is going to happen to prevent us from not doing this or not doing that. But Jesus knew exactly what he was going to endure. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that he was going to be handed over to the guards and that they were going to put the crown of thorns on him, that they were going to strike him with a rod, they were going to mock him, they were going to spit on him, they were going to hit him and say, prophesy, who was it that hit you? He knew he would go before Pilate and Pilate would say, well, I don't find anything wrong with him, but you know what? I'm going to release Barabbas anyway. Jesus knew that as he was hanging on the cross, people would walk by and wag their heads, and they would mock him. they say, if you could save others, why don't you save yourself? Jesus knew all of that. But yet Jesus still came. We read in, in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of human flesh was obedient even to death, death on a cross. You see, God knew in eternity past what Jesus was going to encounter when he came to earth. And Jesus knew before he entered human history through the birth of Mary, his mother, he knew exactly what his entire life held for him. He knew exactly the purpose for which he came, and he knew exactly how it was all going to be carried out. And he still came. Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It's hard to wrap our minds around what Jesus knew and knowing that he still came to earth for you and for me. It's hard to wrap our minds around Jesus knowing fully what was going to happen to him, the, the misery that he would feel, the pain that he would experience, and yet he still came for you and for me. See, I think the knowledge of Jesus, as we understand and as we think about what it is Jesus knows, should help us understand even more the love of Jesus. There's one more thing that I want us to, to think about and consider when we, we think about Jesus' knowledge. Do you know that um, Jesus knows everything that you've ever done? Do you ever think about the fact that nothing you do is hidden from God? You see, Jesus even before there was a single day of your life that you lived, he knew every single day that was going to be your life. Jesus knew all the good things you would do. Jesus knew all the bad things you would do. He knew every single thought you would ever think. He knew everything about you. Do we ever think about that 
when we think about Jesus coming to earth to die in our place. Because I know I've heard a lot of people say things like, well, my life is just too messed up. I've, I've done too much. I've sinned far too much. God is not interested in me. My life is gone. And I'm sure all of you have heard someone say similar things. But do you realize that before you were even born, Jesus knew all of that? Jesus knew every bad thing you would ever do. And guess what? He still came. He still came. Knowing what he would suffer because of you, because of all of your sin and my sin, knowing what he would endure because of that, he still came. Do you ever consider that when you tell people about Jesus and how much he loves his creatures, his created people? Think about this. In the Gospel of, of John, chapter 13, we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet. It's an incredible passage. This la I, I was teaching through the Gospel of John for, I think it took us about two years to get through with the youth, and it just so worked out that we were, I was preaching on, on John chapter 13, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, right as we were getting, I think it was the week before Easter. And so I was telling Josh this, and, and he was like, dude, you need to wash the kids' feet. And I, I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. And so we did, and I think we creeped out a whole bunch of kids, but it was great. But I preached on, on Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And do you know what happens right after Jesus washes the disciples' feet in John 13? They're sitting down to eat, and Jesus says to the 12 disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And they ask, well, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one that I give the morsel to after I've dipped it in the cup. And he dips it in the cup, and he gives it to Judas. And you know what John says right after that? Immediately, Satan entered him. And Jesus said, what you are going to do, do quickly. Did you catch that sequence? Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and then Judas leaves. See, Jesus knew when he chose Judas, before his ministry was even really beginning, that Judas would betray him. And yet here they are, in the upper room. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. He's going to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus gets down on his knees and begins to wash Judas's feet. Jesus knows he's going to betray him. But he still washes his feet. Why? Because Jesus is begging Judas, don't do it. Don't do it. Know that I am going to the cross to pay for your sins. Don't do it, Judas. And Jesus is saying the same to you. Look to my sacrifice. Look at how I have come and served you. Let me serve you. Look to me. Trust in me. Trust in my blood on the cross for your sins. 
See, many of us think that we, we're, we're not worthy of coming to Jesus because our lives are too messed up. May we learn from Jesus that although he knows everything that will happen to him and he knows everything that you've ever done that's going to nail him to that tree, he still came. And he still serves sinners like Judas by washing their feet. The love of Jesus is absolutely magnified when we understand what all he knows. So we've seen that Jesus knows a whole bunch. Now how does he care? How does Jesus care for us because of what he knows about us? In all three of these, these passages that I've been talking about where Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection, all three are these intimate settings where Jesus is alone with his 12 disciples. He's got them there, and he, he's teaching them what's going to happen. Now, let's be honest. If we were a follower of Jesus during the time of his ministry, and we are, are probably on top of the world after he has sent us out, we've cast out demons, we've seen Jesus do incredible miracles and, and raise people from the dead, we would probably be on top of the world. Unstoppable. I'm with him. And then, Jesus is going to be, be betrayed. He's going to be handed over into the hands of men. He's going to be killed then how do you think his disciples would feel? From the highest of highs to the most crushing lows. See, but Jesus is aware of this. Jesus knows that his death on the cross could potentially destroy his disciples. But he knows that. And what do we see him doing in all three of these passages? He's teaching his disciples. He knows what's coming, and he knows that he is preparing his disciples so that they will be able to handle it when it does come. Because of what Jesus knows, Jesus is at work in preparing us so that when that moment comes, we will not be shaken. Our faith will not be rattled. We will not leave Jesus. We will not forsake Jesus. We will not get angry at Jesus. But we will be able to stand. And that is how Jesus is preparing his disciples. Notice in verse 32, the disciples' response to Jesus telling what he, what he told them. Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They're going to kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. Not the first time they've heard that, by the way. And the disciples' response in verse 32 says, But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Have you ever noticed God doing things in your life and you have no idea why he's doing this? No idea what God is doing. No idea how this is working out for my good. No idea. Just perplexed. I think all of us have probably been in that situation at one time or another. And, and I think what we see here in the disciples is the same thing. Jesus is pulling them aside. He says, guys, listen, listen. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over into the hands of men. They're going to kill me. But don't worry, three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And the disciples are like, what? Come again? 
How is that relevant? See, Jesus knows that when he is betrayed and when he's hung on the cross and when he dies and when he's buried into the grave, that is the moment at which his disciples are most vulnerable. They've left everything for him. They've given up everything to follow after him. And if Jesus doesn't play his cards right, then maybe they scatter when that happens. See, but Jesus knows, Jesus knows exactly that this is the moment for which they are most primed to, to run, to flee, to scatter, to, to stop believing, and Jesus is caring for them in preparing them for it. So often it is with us that we see God at work in our life in one way or another, and we don't really understand what he's doing. We don't get it. It doesn't seem to make sense, but maybe at some point, we're able to look back and it clicks. And I see that God was preparing and, and, and doing things in my life that prepared me for this moment. Last week, last Sunday, was February 12th. And that was a, a very difficult day for some friends of, of Sam and I's. February 12th on 2015 was the day that their 17-month-old daughter took their last her last breath, and she passed into eternity. She had leukemia as a little girl, and, and they, they fought that, and, and uh, they actually, uh, the leukemia went into remission, but it took such a toll on her heart that she, she got some, some sort of infection, and, and that's what ultimately uh, led to her death. And so just last week, two years separated from that, I sent my friend a text, and I said, hey, man, I'm thinking about you today, praying for you. He said, I appreciate that. So we actually talked this last week, and I, and I asked him if I could share their story. He said, yeah, absolutely. And, and I remember last September when Sam and I went to visit them. He's a pastor in South Carolina, and, and she stays at home with their, their daughter and soon to be another son. Uh, I, I asked him. I remember we were riding in the car somewhere together, and, and I brought it up, and I said, you know, how have, you, how have you felt towards God during that time? And he said, well, you know, I, I can't lie. There were, there were times of, of anger, times of frustration, times of just not knowing why. But he said, but, but as I look back at life before we had Addie, and, and even while we had her and while she was sick, said, I saw that, that God was growing me in so many different ways that prepared me for that day. That although that day didn't make that day any easier, didn't make that day any better, I was aware that God was at work in my life, although I didn't understand it at the time, God was preparing me for the day in which my little baby girl would take her last breath. And he said, if, if I didn't know what I know about God, I would have walked away. I would have said, forget you, God. You're not good. But he said, because I knew God and I knew that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, I was able to handle that moment. And even to this day, I am able to continue trusting and believing in God because he was at work long before in preparing me for that moment. Brothers and sisters, do you trust that Jesus cares for you so much and that he's preparing you for things that you cannot even imagine?
Are you listening to his voice? Are you listening to what he has to say? Are you letting Jesus be the shepherd who leads you to green pastures and besides still waters? Jesus knows everything about you. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus also cares so much that he's at work preparing your heart for the most difficult moments in life. We don't know what they are. Thankfully, God has shielded the, the future from us so that we don't know. But God is at work in us right now to prepare us for that. Do you know that? Do you believe that? God, we thank you so much for this morning and, and for this passage in Mark where Jesus foretells of his death and his resurrection. God, I pray that all of us here this morning would understand that Jesus knows us deeply, that Jesus knew exactly what waited, awaited him as he approached the cross, and yet even knowing that, he loved us so much that he still came. God, I pray that all of us would understand that we need you to prepare us as we walk through life. We cannot handle it on our own. God, we thank you for this morning, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.